Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners. If someone were to give me a crystal ball before this all happened and say, this is going to be your life, I would have told them they were out of their minds. There is no way. This happens to other people. That's Paula Seri talking about her sister, Diane Ward. I can tell you that right now. She was just an amazing person. She really was. I don't think she had an enemy. I really don't. She was just, she was always funny, always laughing. Diane Ward is often described by friends and family this way. Happy, jovial, fun. So how did that person, as the prosecution speculates, end up in an extremely heated, volatile fight? A confrontation that ultimately led to her death. We had a broke wine glass. We had wine on the back of his shirt. This looked like there was a lot of ill will, hatred, and spite. It's time we asked. What do we really know about Diane Ward? What was she going through in the weeks and months before she was killed? And what role could she have played that night? I believe that they argued, and he picked up a gun, and he shot her. Not a single person that knows my family thinks that he did this. He was a very smart person. But the other side was the nasty side. This is not a murder. This is the opposite of a murder scene. If this was some tragic accident, wouldn't he have tried to look for a pulse? There is not physical evidence, and you have a trail of people who didn't do their goddamn job. There's a verdict in the murder trial of Isleworth millionaire Bob Ward. Think this was an accident or a murder? I, I really can't say. 
from Discovery Plus, ID, and Joke Productions. This is Unraveled, Mystery at the Mansion, a nine-part podcast that takes a deep dive into the story of a family torn apart. A trial turned into a media spectacle and investigates the mystery. What really happened to Diane Ward? At the trial of Bob Ward, the prosecution spoke about justice for the victim, Diane Ward. She was described as a good friend, a lovely lady, and a good mom. Friends and acquaintances were brought up on the stand to testify to Diane's big personality, her kindness, and her generosity. And to this day, those qualities seem to be the first things people recall. She was outgoing and just very thoughtful. We were friends for quite a few years, you know, back from junior high and high school. And she had a great sense of humor and she just was fun to be around. She was fun. Yes, she was. She was fun, happy, joyous, and with a really pretty voice, like a bubbly, happy voice. She had loved life. I mean, everything she did, she did with the same passion and generosity, I think. Loved her dogs, loved her bird, loved to cook. And she still owes me a lesson on lasagna. Very friendly, very generous. Always, I'd say she's definitely more generous than average person in every respect. Very devoted to her daughters. Her daughters were everything. They didn't have to sacrifice anything because they had the means, but Diane sacrificed her entire being for her daughters. She was amazing. Everybody liked Diane. She was very pretty. She was really smart. She was just really a very kind person. And I miss her a lot. I really do. That last voice was Diane's sister, Paula, again. She recalls the early days of Bob and Diane's relationship. Do you remember when Diane met Bob? I do. Diane was an administrative assistant, and my sister and Bob worked together. That's how they met. I'll never forget, one day he had asked her out. They were going out on a boat. There was, there's a lake north of Atlanta, it's called Lake Lanier. Diane says, oh, I'm just going with this guy that I work with. And I said, I think, I think he's asking you out on a date. She goes, you think this is a date? You know, we were kind of laughing about it. Well, it was. And, you know, fast forward, they got along great. Obviously, the relationship had a progression. They got married, I think, in 85, 1985, I think. Diane, she was the one that convinced Bob to going into business for himself. And he would always give Diane credit for his success. He said if it wasn't for Diane, he never would have, he never would have taken that leap. As his business grew, obviously, so did the incomes. And I guess it was around like 2002, maybe. I think things pretty much maybe started taking off, but their values remained the same. The girls were still the most important part of their life. I mean, that's the kind of family they were. My mom was a character. She was so much fun, could be so embarrassing. 
but like I was a teenage girl, so I guess that's par for the course. She was always, she is very Italian, so very emotional, <laughs> always talking with her hands. And um, she was just funny. She was such an animal lover. She wanted to, my dad called her Dr. Doolittle. She wanted to always help everyone. She always made me want to be a better person. My mom and dad just always had the best time together. They were always laughing. I remember like the weekends at the lake house were just incredible and so much fun. And it was just really worry-free. Like we all got along really well and enjoyed each other's company. Over 20 years into their marriage, Bob and Diane had a lively, full life. And Bob's booming business was increasingly making that life much more luxurious. Until, of course. Was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. As we covered in episode three, the financial crisis of 2008, like it did for so many others, upended life for Bob and Diane Ward. But what we have yet to explore is how that moment seemed to change Diane. Because according to many, in the 12 months before her death, Diane's personality took a sharp turn. I knew my mom was upset about losing the company. She loved the money. She loved the horses. She loved the nice cars. But she also didn't grow up with much. My dad didn't have a job when they got married. So I figured she'd bounce back. I didn't realize until later and then looking back, the warning signs of her mental health deteriorating. At one point, my mom took me to lunch, and I could tell she was under so much stress. But she just lit into me. She was like, your dad's losing everything. And, you know, if you didn't have all these horses, we'd be fine. But you have all these horses, so this is all your fault. And, I mean, she just launched into me. But you could see, like, just the panic and the stress and what it was doing to her. By all accounts, the happy-go-lucky, larger-than-life Diane started to take on a distinct bitterness. According to Bob Ward's own words, Diane hated him for what was happening to the company. And that resentment was boiling over. Diane's friend, Christina Steinhaus, had perhaps the closest view of Diane's deteriorating condition. I want to understand a little better. Around 2008, when, you know, Bob took, was beginning to take a financial hit, well, you, you know, you have to understand, I'm, I hate to interrupt, but all of us were taking a financial hit. The, the country was crashing, mainly because of the housing and the banks. Um, so we were all taken by unawares that what is going on here, and nobody really could figure it out right away. Kind of like the pandemic, where you don't know what's happening right away. Or how bad it's going to get. Or how bad it's going to get, and it did. And what kind of toll did you notice this taking on her at that time? Huge, huge toll. She would get edgy, nervous, paranoid, angry at Bob. Because, you know, at that time, nobody understood why these things were happening. So where do you, you know, where do you put your anger at the only person that you know that can control portions of your life? And that would, that would be Bob. Did you find that when the stress continued and continued to mount that she found new ways to cope that she wasn't 
utilizing before. I think it became evident to me what she was doing to cope. You know, first of all, she, she drinks, she loved to drink, and sometimes she would get very, very angry and emotional. I think she was scared. I, I think people lose their temper when they're scared, sometimes. At the horse shows, for instance, it was unnecessary, and it, it, added, um, it added a lot of stress. How did that anger, paranoia, frustration sort of materialize at, at the horse shows and... Something was said by someone who had been a source of Diane's problems for a while. And Diane just flew off the handle and publicly went after this person and pushed her, poked her, screamed at her, I mean, in her face. And this went on for about 45 minutes, an hour. It, it, it was a long time. It went around the whole show. <laughs> it moved. <laughs> it was breathtaking. The anger was breathtaking. I had never experienced anything like it. Were you shocked? I was stunned. Did you recognize her as your best friend? I was really mad at her. <laughs> I was very angry at her and I told her so and I hurt her feelings. What was happening is the mental load was becoming too great. So that things that you would not normally react to, she was reacting to. And it was becoming more obvious as 2009 was progressing. I saw it escalate and I saw it getting worse and worse and worse. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. By spring of 2009, Bob and Diane Ward's finances had taken a huge hit. They'd been forced to sell a number of assets and curb their opulent lifestyle. According to her friends and family, the previously fun-loving Diane was not handling it well. She had begun to self-medicate with copious amounts of red wine. In fact, we're told that Diane had begun to drink every day, starting around 11.30 in the morning. Here's her daughter, Sarah. Oh yeah, it was rough. I remember multiple times her pulling out full bottles of wine out of her purse. And, I mean, she. there were times where she got a little crazy. Usually it was just like, oh my God, you're being so embarrassing. But sometimes it was, this isn't safe. Or you're not making sense. If she was drinking, it would always be really dramatic. I remember we'd been at a horse show all day, and we were staying at a hotel not far from the park. And she got all mad at me, and she just is screaming at me. And then she took her suitcase and, like, like threw it right at me. And, I mean, she wasn't a big lady, but she'd been drinking all night. So I was like, it's just drunk mom being drunk mom. But, yeah, looking back, like, that's weird. Like, who throws things at their kid? Her drinking wasn't the problem. That's Diane's other daughter, Mallory. It was the medication she was taking. I mean, anyone can drink a bottle of wine a night and be fine. But when you're piling that on top of medication that you're taking, then that becomes a problem. And I didn't know that that was a problem. I had no idea. Because again, she's your mom, and you want to believe that your mom's doing the right thing and not being stupid. And it turns out that sometimes they are. But again, I, I didn't see it. Sarah saw it. I knew she was taking medication for depression, anxiety, and an overactive thyroid. And I knew she would take it, forget she took it, and took it again. Or at least that was the excuse she gave me. And that, coupled with the drinking, would make her... I would call Dad and be like, Mom's being 
nuts again. Like, I don't know what's going on. Finally, my dad and I, we sat down and we're like, okay, we're going to get one of those like pill planner things and we're going to put them all in there. And it had to have like AM, lunchtime, PM, night. I mean, she was on a ton of meds. And we're like, and you're going to keep track of these and and I would fill it. But I also was like, I'm not the parent, but I was the only one with her most of the time. So looking back, I wish I had kept better track. But I was 19 years old. I shouldn't have to be the one to step in. But I regret not being the one to step in. Paula Saw remembers the moment she realized the depth of her sister's knowledge of various types of prescription meds. What happened was there was a lot of pressure at work. And I remember telling my sister, I said, oh my gosh, you know what? I said, I need something. I needed something to take you know, the edge off. I said, I am just a maniac. And she starts telling me about different drugs. She says something about Prozac. And I remember thinking, what? And she says, well, you know, you don't want to take Prozac because it kind of just numbs you to things. I'm like, okay. And she says, you may want to look at Zoloft. I'm like, oh, okay. And it kind of made me question, I was like, how does she know about these things? We had such a casual conversation about it. At Bob Ward's trial, Paula's suspicions over her sister's prescription drug use would be confirmed. Unbeknownst to us, my sister was taking antidepressants and she chased them with wine. And The only reason why I'm sure she never told me what she was taking is because I would have gotten in my car and gone to Atlanta and taken her to a Betty Ford clinic. It's a shame she knew me that well because that's what would have happened and I'm sure that's the last thing in the world she wanted to happen. But I did not know the medication she was taking. I I had no idea because had I known I would have done something. The question is, was all of this still affecting Diane in the months leading up to the night she died? According to Diane's friend Christina, this combination of red wine and prescription meds was making Diane's erratic behavior much more prevalent. Was there really a a period of time where you noticed a change in her personality or, or what have you? We were at a horse show at Conyers. It was an international derby class that Sarah and my daughter were riding in that night. And so everybody kind of goes down to the international ring. They all, everybody gets a drink and sits in their golf cart or, you know, sits on the the wall and and watches and listens to the, and watches the rounds. They're great. Diane would be cooler in a golf cart. Anybody, you know, that came by could stop and have a chat with Diane and have a glass of wine or champagne and kind of made a snap judgment that something was going on. So I slid into the golf cart and Diane was just completely lost on me. The reason really wasn't important. It really had nothing to do with me. It was, um, she felt that I had taken someone else's side in a situation and it was exposed over the loudspeakers at the arena in front of everybody. 
A couple of hours later, I saw two people helping her to her car. She was in rough shape. She was inebriated. And more, now that we know what was really happening. I was so mad at her <laughs> that night for that. I thought that our friendship was ended at that point. The next morning, my phone rang, and it was Diane. And she said, I am on my knees. I'm begging you to forgive me for last night. I am so sorry. I was so wrong. She went on like that for a while, and I finally said, okay, I forgive you. Okay, let's put it behind us. And we did. As Diane's condition worsened, the financial hits kept coming. One of the companies hired to go after Bob's assets was particularly aggressive. The Bond people were harassing and stalking them. The Bond company was, you know, sitting outside their house in a car 24 hours a day, as far as I know. They were taking the kids' cars. You know, they, they were taking photographs. They were stalking them. They were hunting them. That's disturbing. Was how she was handling it then different than the past? She'd say, I'm, they're out there again. I'm going to get the gun. Now, that, a lot has been made of that statement. Diane did not know how to shoot a gun. She did not know how to load a gun. She didn't even like guns. For her to say, I'm going to get the gun, was an effort to explain her anger at this unfair intrusion to her life. And there were times when she was there alone, and Bob wasn't there. He might have been on site at, you know, at one of the construction vacation home sites that he had. And that, I think that's even a little more difficult to take. It's scary. You know, you've got them right outside your door or outside your window. Imagine, you know, standing over the kitchen sink in your jammies and looking up and having someone take your picture. You have business stress. You have drinking, you have medication, you have just everyday stress of going to all the horse shows. Now money's become a factor, and you're being asked not to spend money, or can you cut back, and you're in a position where you really can't. I visited Diane at their house in Islesworth that spring. She was not herself at all. The joy was going away and it became more of a bottle of wine, a bottle of wine, and they stack up. It's a lot. Her daughters were gone at school. Her sister was away, and she didn't live there. She was alone in this huge house in a place she didn't really want to be and didn't feel comfortable. We talked to many of Diane's friends over the course of this investigation and it seems they all agreed. There came a point around the summer of 2009 when Diane Ward realized how big her problem had become. Well, we'd meet across the yard and we'd have a glass of wine together, red wine. That's Diane's neighbor, Suzanne Denor. And she realized she was drinking too much. One time we decided she wanted to go to mass So we went to her church before dinner, and she had confession, and she came out, and she was crying, and said that Monsignor was very helpful, and he basically told her, 
that she may not have as much as she's accustomed to having, but what she has is enough. He was trying to tell her to be grateful for what she has, which is plenty. And that's the only time that I ever heard her talk about change in lifestyle, possibly. In the summer months before her death, Diane seemed to successfully temper her drinking and kept things relatively under control. Diane's friend Christina also witnessed this period of relative calm while it lasted. She had this self-awareness about red wine. Did she stick to that once she sort of was grounded from red wine? She did until about... It stands out in my mind because it was about a few days before they, Bob and Diane, made the final drive to uh, Orlando, to Islesworth. We met, went out to lunch, and Diane came in, sat down, and ordered a bottle of red wine, just like that. I didn't say anything. And then Bob showed up. I didn't drink that much, but they took part of the wine home with them from the second bottle. I was surprised. I know she was upset. I mean, she didn't want to be out of Atlanta. There was nothing going on in Diane's favor right then. She was not pleased. Diane's neighbor, Suzanne, vividly remembers the night of September 20th, 2009, the last time she spoke with Diane on the phone. She sounded fine, but she was very upset about leaving here. They were going to keep the house, go back and forth, because the girls wanted to remain in Atlanta. But she took all the pets. They had, she had two cats, two or three dogs, birds. And so she took all that with her. Things were changing, and there was probably a lot of pressure. And it was the night before she was killed. So my last conversations with my mom would have been Monday, the day she died. And we thought I had swine flu. That's Diane Ward's daughter, Sarah, again. That's when swine flu was a big thing. And I was really sick. So we were joking about me having swine flu. And we were talking about how to get out of my test the next day. She sounded good. She was outside. They were on the patio drinking. But... What stuck out to me, especially looking back, she was drinking red wine again that night and she hadn't been all summer because she knew it made her a little bit loopy. And that was when she would throw suitcases at me or scream or be dramatic at horse shows. So it was weird that that was happening because she drank a lot that night. And who knows how that could have affected her. There's a few ways of looking at Diane's mental and physical state on the night of her death. It's possible to view Diane's consumption of red wine and pills as nothing out of the ordinary. It's also possible that something else was going on. That perhaps Diane began drinking that night with the intent to take her own life. Looking back on their last communication, her daughter Mallory remembers her mother's odd behavior. So my mom died Monday night. 
the 21st of September. I had spoken to her Sunday night, the 20th, and she had said, you know, call me before your class tomorrow. It was like a 9.30 class. And I was like, no, mom, I'm not gonna call you. Like I call you every Monday after my class at noon. And she was like, just please, 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 please call me before your class. And I was like, no, 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 I'll call you after. And I remember hanging up and I was like, oh, why is she being so weird? Nothing's gonna happen. And I called her the next day after my class and she answered and I had this like weird sense of relief that she'd answered. And I don't know why I felt that weird sense of relief, but I did. We talked, I mean, again, we, we didn't, we, we talked about nothing, you know? You want to look back on a phone call, you know, the, the last few phone calls that you would ever talk to your mom about and be like, well, they were so profound and whatever, but it was like stupid stuff about Facebook. The prosecution would apply their own interpretations to Mallory's story. They claimed that everyday chit-chat about Facebook and plans for the future doesn't indicate a woman thinking about her death. They also point to Diane's very last conversation with someone other than her husband, her old friend, Georgia Spearman. We had like three, I want to say three conversations that day. I just had set up a Facebook account for, for anybody in our junior high and high school years. And people had started joining that group. And I said, there's a lot of people on there, you know. And she goes, okay, I don't know how to do this. And I helped her set it up. And we, you know, just talked and she told me about her girls and what they were doing. And she says, I'm pouring another glass of wine. And I said, well, if I was there, I'd have another one with you, joking. And she laughed and we went on our conversation. That's when she said, well, Bob just walked in. I got to go fix dinner for him. And just happy. She didn't sound, she didn't fill her words. She didn't, she sounded perfectly fine. I had no idea that they were in this financial mess. I had no idea. And she didn't allude to it. They just seemed very happy. She's okay, we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. That was the last time I talked to her, and that was like an hour or so before she was killed. When she talked to her friend that day, Diane was fine. That's prosecutor Robin Wilkinson again. Diane was talking about a trip with Sarah with her, her horse shows. So you look at that. There's no evidence of suicide that day. Mallory, her own daughter, was a very reluctant anti-state witness, mom was fine that day. We knew that the wards from Mallory at times drank too much. Once again, that can cause arguments. Then you show the jury that in the bubble of what's going on in their life this particular time, his companies are going bankrupt. They haven't paid the mortgage for months. They moved down here to use Florida homestead laws to protect assets. They transferred assets in Diane's name. She had to go to a bankruptcy deposition. She tried to get out of it. All of those things put together show whatever was going on in their marriage, Bob Ward shot his wife out of ill will, hatred, or spite. There's a lot of conflicting evidence here. And we haven't even gotten to perhaps the most confusing factor. When police were summoned to the Isleworth home and Diane's body was eventually taken away, the medical examiners ran a standard toxicology test. What it turned up only adds to the mystery. Diane's blood alcohol level was 0.113. That's elevated, but not particularly high for a heavy drinker. Then there were the drugs. Diane had the antidepressant trazodone in her system. 
but the levels seemed to show that she hadn't taken it the night of her death. However, she also had the mood depressant citalopram, which is sold under the brand name Celexa in her system. Citalopram has recommended therapeutic range of about 200 nanograms. Diane's level was 840. I asked medical examiner Dr. Joshua Stephanie about what would seem like a bombshell of a fact. So apparently this range of the drug, you're, it's supposed to have 200 and hers was 840. So would this be a significant finding during a toxicology report? Not really, and let me explain why. So drugs and drug levels do not work on a linear type of association, meaning if you take one Advil, your level will be so much. If you take two Advil, it's gonna be double. It doesn't work that way. In the same way with citalopram. So those drugs have to go from your stomach or into your bloodstream. And then they have to go to their target organs. And so that's another phase, the absorption phase. And then there's a metabolism phase. When you see a drug level and then it's higher, you can't just say someone took four times that amount to get to that level because of all these different phases. And so they make it what we call false elevations. Is there a way to get accurate data or are there too many variables? Well, you're, not, you're never going to get 100% accurate data because not every individual is the same. But there's a whole bigger picture for us. We have to look at the whole scene. And in this specific case, the cause of death, I, I believe, is indisputable. We know it's a gunshot on the head. What a trazodone level or alcohol level or any drug level will do for me as far as determining the cause of marriage death, I think it's pretty inconsequential. At the trial, the prosecution presented Dr. Stephanie's testimony as settled fact. Diane Ward's cause of death has nothing to do with it. Drugs in her system are the alcohol. <laughs> because you're going to hear from the medical examiners that her cause of death is a single gunshot wound to her face. The defense countered with medical experts of their own leading to a lot of technical back and forth about drug distribution and how the method and extraction point of the blood had an effect on the results of the test. The doctors that testify in this case will tell you that one of the reasons you should not take more than the prescribed dose is because an overdose of this drug can cause suicidal or homicidal or other violent thoughts. All of these things numerous experts disagreed on. But ultimately, it came down to Diane's stomach contents. If she'd taken a huge dosage of the pills that night, as the defense insinuated, it would reason that a toxicology report on her stomach contents could provide a clearer picture. But those contents, they were thrown away. There was a decision made at some point. The stomach contents were all thrown away. I mean, do you see that as a problem? No. Why not? Because you have to go back to all the other evidence. This wasn't a situation of where we thought anything she ingested killed her. Like, it would be different if there was suspicion of, of poison or something. So as far as in his shooting, I'm not surprised. If you convict somebody, it has to be without a shadow of a doubt. One doctor made the comment that there was no way my sister was waking up the next morning. If this accident hadn't happened, she would have been dead by the next morning because of the amount of drugs and alcohol she had in her system. 
And it's like they were sloppy. To Bob's defense team, all of the prosecution's arguments around toxicology missed the point. In their minds, the case isn't about whether Diane actually OD'd, but her state of mind at the time of her death. And because they say the investigators made errors, we may never know what happened. Here's the defense attorney, Jim Fellman, again. I get to a place where Diane is up there where the gun is, and she's not a happy camper. And we know that she's been drinking alcohol, and we know that she's taken an amount of these citalopram that's an antidepressant. When you take it at an unusually high dose, are known to include hostility, aggression, and suicidality. And the amount of citalopram that this woman had taken, according to the defense experts at least, was highly significant a massive ingestion of this medication that tends to not react well or play well with alcohol. I just think we don't know. And, and for better or worse, in our criminal justice system, as a matter of criminal law, we don't lock people up when you're not sure. For those who knew Diane Ward best, you also get a mixed bag of opinions. Was this a suicide attempt? An angry argument? or something in between. You know, when bad things happen, they happen in a split second. I don't know that anybody has a true vision of what happened in that room or why. In my mind, you know, I could see Diane being angry, maybe she had a couple glasses of red wine by the pool and stormed off and leaving Bob out there and going up to the bedroom and for dramatic effect, picking up a gun. I'm going to shoot, and I can see the, she was Italian, she was dramatic. I can see her doing something like that, having no idea how the gun would go off or that the gun would go off. But, you know, of course, Bob would know and uh, probably struggled to get the gun away from her. I was never present in their house when they were drinking a lot. I was never in their company. But I, I suspect that maybe the combination of the drugs and the alcohol, what I think is she throws the glass of wine at him for whatever reason, and I think she might have gone upstairs. I don't know if she was gonna use the gun against Bob, I don't think so. I don't know exactly what happened in that room, but I think it was maybe an accident. When you take that many pills, you're obviously out of your mind. You're blaming him for, for what happened financially, what happened with the company. My mom wasn't this like greedy woman at all, but like, you know, you get used to a certain way of living and suddenly you, you have this fear that that's going to be taken away. My dad was, who she was blaming in that instant or in that time. I think that anyone would agree, which I think also should speak for itself to, to suicide and saying that anyone would still say, even if my mom hadn't been shot that night, she still would have died on September 21st. That would have happened. Whether or not she died in her sleep or she took a bullet to the face, my mom was always going to die on September 21st. In the case of Bob and Diane Ward, 
we arrive again at this moment of uncertainty. But then... I was in my room packing and I heard screaming, like, come here, come here, come here. A piece of evidence is uncovered. One that throws everything we thought we knew about this case into complete disarray. It was a suicide note and it was on my mom's stationery. It was her saying goodbye. Next time on Unraveled, Mystery at the Mansion. What were you finding in Diane's closets? I found a business card and notebook, and it had her name on it. And then deep down behind the driver's license and the business card was a note. I immediately screamed for Mallory and Sarah. So they come running down the hall. I'm like, read this. And we're like in shock. I'm gonna not give you hope, because you say this is what we've been waiting for. How did you feel when the jury left to deliberate? You believe in your case? You believe in the evidence? I just remember sitting there with him and they read the verdict. We jury finally finished. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagia Messina, and Jeff Kuntz, along with myself, Alexis Linkletter, and Billy Jensen. Executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing by Mike Gattinella. Our editor is Corey Nye. The music and score that you've heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Archival clips courtesy of CNN. Make sure to check for episode seven next week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy. Thank you for listening and for your support.